This is the Fire Dog Podcast. The views and opinions presented on today's episode are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. Welcome, my name is Matt Wilson. Thank you for joining us for part one of the Air Force Fire Protection History Series. In this series, I'm joined with Senior Master Sergeant Damian Moore. Over the past few years, Sergeant Moore dedicated much of his time to researching and studying both civil engineer and Air Force fire protection history. His efforts were inspired by a personal drive to know our history and also to make sure others within the career field knew the history. He's a frequent guest speaker at the Air Force Institute of Technology 427 course, also known as the Fire Protection Superintendent course. The material covered today and in subsequent history episodes come from a variety of sources. A condensed version of the material, as well as links to resources, are available on our website, firedog.us. As always, don't forget to check out our website, firedog.us, where you'll find new podcast episodes along with articles for people across the fire service. So make sure to go to the site, save it to your favorites, and if you want to write an article to be featured on the site, click Contribute at the top of the page. Part one of the history series will cover inception of the Army Air Corps Fire Service and take us through 1950s. So without further ado, please welcome Senior Master Sergeant Damian Moore. All right. Welcome, sir. I, I appreciate you coming on to discuss Air Force FES history. So I went through 427 course in December of 2019, and I remember you giving this presentation. And it was the same time that Ben and I had actually pitched the podcast. And one of my first ideas was to cover history, and largely because I'm a history fan myself, but uh, I think it's super interesting, all the stuff that you that you covered there. So I was super excited to have you on today. Hey, man, I want to say thanks for, for having me on. Um, I do remember that uh, particular class, and it was actually the first time this uh, particular presentation was being delivered. So it's kind of cool that uh, your process started at the same time uh, this process was starting. Um, and I know we talked back then about getting on the show, and I know it's been a, a long time coming. So I do appreciate your, your patience and uh, your persistence and uh, get me on here. Um, you know, I'm just happy to be able to you know, spread the message and and share, you know, something that really just kind of sparked out of my own personal interest. Um, you know, no one, you know, really put me up to this. It was just kind of formulated out of my own curiosity um, and then just kind of developed into what it is today. Yeah, that's a great product. And you have a slideshow, and I'm just kind of explaining this for listeners. You got a slideshow that you that you use, and that we're going to use as we're talking here, that you've kind of developed and refined, it seems, over the years, and it's covering um, basically from, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, the Army Air Corps days, World War II, kind of pre World War II, up until um, current time, and our idea here is to split it up a bit. Because you give this presentation in a couple hours, is that correct? So that's correct. Yeah, just spot on. Uh, early uh, Army Air Corps days uh, we'll start with, and then we'll kind of take it up to current day. Um, really about the, the early 2000s um, is where we kind of cap off. But um, uh, yeah, and uh, the plan is, uh, or the way we, we thought best to deliver this course um, at 427 I was just kind of walking through the decades and and really kind of doing it in bite-sized pieces versus just dragging it out for the whole time. So um, we found that it works best that way, um, somewhat of a 30, 40-minute segments. Um, so 
Um, the idea today would be to try to get through um, our early beginnings, you know, 1930s, um, all the way up to the late 50s. So before we get into that, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you know, where are you stationed? What rank do you hold? What position do you hold? And then we'll talk about how you got involved with this history. Okay, cool. Yeah, so uh, Senior Master Sergeant Damian Moore, currently uh, Deputy Fire Chief out at uh, Masawa Air Base. So um, been in the Air Force for quite a bit of time now. Uh, joined actually as a reservist in 2002 and then came on active duty in 2004. First base was Vandenberg and then from Vandenberg went out to Kadena to teach Airman Leadership School for about three years and then back into the fire service at Andrews. And from Andrews, I um, was uh, selected to go down to Tyndall and lead the uh, uh, Silver Flag uh, course down there. And then uh, yeah, from Tyndall uh, to my current assignment now. So, yeah. So how'd you get involved with the Air Force FES history? You so, said you just kind of took it upon yourself. Yeah. So, you know, I think as young guys coming up or at least for me, um, you always have questions, right? You hear things like, you know, why is the fire department a part of CE? You know, why aren't we on our own? Why aren't we combined with security forces? Why aren't we, you know, this or that? Why is our career field so civilian heavy? Um, uh, so many different questions and um, not really a lot of answers. And so um, I made, uh, while I was at Silver Flag, I made a uh, senior master sergeant. And one of the requirements is when you make senior is uh, you attend the CE's 570, superintendent 570 course down at AFIT. And so it was during this time that one of the homework assignments there, um, and it's one of my sources listed in the slideshow, if we're able to get that out, um, was to watch a video on CE history. And it was uh, then Lieutenant Colonel uh, LeBlanc who kind of laid out some things. And one of the first things he hit on was, you know, um, and I don't want to get ahead of myself and give away, you know, part of the presentation, but he kind of explained uh, why fire was a part of CE. And I was like, whoa, like, you know, here I am, been in for, you know, 15, 16 years. Um, and this is the first time I had a, a solid, legitimate answer to a question, you know, that, you know, I think not just myself, but, you know, all of us out there have probably asked at some point in time. And so I started digging and started asking questions as to where he got his information from. And that led me to a couple of source documents. And really, that's where this presentation was uh, built from. And I I just dug in and really just started finding. And obviously, as you said, you're a fan of history. You know, once you find one thing and it just kind of peaks you, and so it gets you going, right? You start looking for something else. And yeah, it just turned into this, uh, uh, this labor of love for me, for sure, um, answering this. And I never... You know, when I when I set out set out to do this, I never intended or never thought, you know, that I'd be be doing something like I'm doing today, or even presenting it at the five or the four twenty seven course. So, um, yeah, you just uh, you just never know uh, what things can kind of lead to. Well, I certainly appreciate what you've done. I think that it's important that we all know our history, yes. so that we know where we came from, and it's certainly interesting that military members provide 
fire service on installation. It's a unique thing that I look forward to exploring. We could certainly get this PowerPoint presentation out if that's something that you'd be okay with. Yeah. Easy thing to do. Yeah, I think so. I've had uh, quite a few folks reach out, you know, individually and I've, you know, provided it, uh, you know, obviously it needs to be, um, you know, provided with context. I think that helps. Um, I don't, I don't know that, um, you know, anyone uh, can't do it, uh, but more so maybe, you know, understanding how the slides are laid out, right. May just be a, a quick conversation like, Hey, here's how it flows. And, and then you're off. Right. And then ideally, right. It, it sparks an interest in you or, you know, in the individual, and then you go out and, and add to it. Right. And you kind of robust it and make it bigger and better. Um, it's really um, the hope and, and idea there. Well, let's get into it. You know, where's a good place to start? So I think, like you just said, I think uh, starting with the why is important, right? So, uh, but before I do that, I do want to kind of highlight, uh, you know, my sources. Uh, one is, uh, it's called Leading the Way, the History of Air Force Civil Engineers. And it kind of captures our, our history from 1907 all the way through to 2012. And then another big piece, um, and this is a, a big shout out to, to Chief Doug Corsheen. Uh, he uh, penned Pioneers with Intent, Memoirs of an Air Force Firefighter. And a lot of uh, my material or the material that's covered in here came from from his efforts of, you know, capturing a lot of our history. And, um, you know, these two source documents have been a wealth of knowledge for me, in addition to, of course, you know, um, good old Google um, search engines and things like that. So. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to, to highlight my sources there, um, and that's where I'm getting a lot of this data and information from. And so he, he gave those source documents to you directly, or you had to go to a library and find those? How'd you find? So the, the one, uh, the, the uh, CE history one was uh, uh, given to us at the 570 course. So that's an electronic document, but also so is the Pioneers with Intent. But that actually came to me by way of uh, Chief Morris. Um, and he was the one that really kind of pushed me to, to put something together and formalize this, um, this process to be able to present at 427. Um, and I kind of left that out a little bit earlier, but, um, I had the opportunity to go up to, uh, headquarters, uh, PACAF there in Hickam to kind of cover down, uh, uh, while he was in trans transition to head up to the Pentagon for his current position. And uh, I just started asking him the questions that I've always asked and uh, wondered. And, but I had a little I had some answers now. Right. So I kind of was trying to, you know, uh, show him that, hey, did you know this? Did you know that? Did you know this? Right. And so so he's looking at me and he's like, yeah, I knew that. And he he's like, wait a second. You know, And so he comes back and he actually has a hard copy of this Air Force Civil Engineers uh, book. He puts it on a desk like, yeah, it's all in here. And I was like, oh, yeah. So I was like, so you know what I'm talking about. Why, you know, why aren't we getting this stuff out? Why aren't we, you know, presenting this at the fire school or or at least 427? And and that really is what uh, got the ball rolling um, to get it to where it is today. So and uh, so, yeah, so he was the one also who provided the pioneers with intent. Uh, it was uh, down at the AFCEC um 
in their vault, I guess. Uh, it's kind of stored there, a copy of it, but uh, I do have a digital copy of that as well. Yeah, and we could provide that too. I mean, you just you send over whatever you're willing to send over and we could get that out. Sounds good. Okay, we'll do that. Uh, so again, starting with the why, right? Um, you know, quote I have here on the slide says, you know, air bases, a quote from General Hap Arnold, right? It says, uh, air bases are a determining factor in success of air operations. The two-legged stool of men and planes would topple over without this equally third important leg. And so essentially what, what General Arnold was saying was, hey, you know what? We can have people, we can have planes, but if we don't have air bases to launch, right, or to project air power from, um, we're, we're going to be kind of useless in the fight, right? And so when we talk about sustaining an installation, sustaining a base, um, that's what we as civil engineers do, right? And I, and I lump us in, you know, as civil engineers because um, you'll find out soon that, um, you know, that's who we are, right? And I know there's been, you know, again, that wrestle of, you know, maybe fire being its own entity. But, you know, when we get to the why and we kind of unpack it and you understand why we fall under the engineers or why we fall under the civil engineers, um, I think it would all make sense um, there. So essentially that's kind of the why, right? You know, sustaining air bases, right? And that includes protecting it um, as well um, is part of the why as to why we exist and why we, who we are or why we are who we are and why we do what we do. Yeah. The fundamental difference here is, Air bases are power projection platforms. Correct. Just like an aircraft carrier or just like an army battalion. But, you know, we stay in one place, launch and recover aircrafts from one place, whereas the other services do business a little bit differently. And so not to say that we're our bases are more important than theirs, but this is where we execute our mission from the base. Absolutely. That's, that's kind of how I interpret this. Yeah, you're spot on. Yep. Um, and so, you know, I typically with the course when I deliver this, uh, well, lately, virtually, um, you know, I kind of open up with a did you know kind of question. Right. And the idea of the did you know questions are to uh, kind of maybe debunk some uh, some common misconceptions out there in the fire service. Uh, some things that we uh, that we think are true and, and maybe not. Uh, and I always have fun with this one, especially this first one, because uh, just about almost everybody gets this wrong. Right. And so the first uh, did you know question is, uh, did you know the longest serving Air Force warrant officer was a fire guy? Right. And so I present that question to him and then or I, I present that with him. And then I say, do you know who it is? And I give them a list of options. And so Alpha is. Uh, you know, Chief uh, Garland, of course, and then Bravo's Chief Bob Burrell. Um, Charlie, we look at, uh, you know, Chief uh, Val Allen Jr. And then we look at the last Delta as option as uh, Chief Warrant Officer Carl, Carl Baker. And so, you know, nine out of 10 times, everybody selects Alpha, which is uh, Chief Warrant Officer Lewis F. Garland. Um, and then I, you know, come around and say, hey, actually, it is Chief uh, Bob Burrell. Um, he was the actual uh, longest serving um, warrant officer in the Air Force. Right um, now, he was a reservist. You know, quick ca caveat to that. Um, 
So it is kind of a setup question, but uh, he is the longest serving uh, uh, warrant officer in the Air Force. Uh, Chief Garland was the longest serving uh, active duty fire guy. Um, however, uh, Chief Bob Burrell, again, was the longest serving reservist. And the reason that people are probably picking Chief Garland is it's probably one of the most recognized names in Air Force Perfect. Fire Protection, being that the school was named after him and everything else. Absolutely. And everything that he's done for, for our fire service. I mean, just right. how can you not, you know, think it was him? So, again, right. you know, just have fun with it and, and uh, kind of talk a little bit about uh, Chief Burrell and who he was and, you know, just some interesting facts, you know, for example, uh you know, he retired in 1992, and uh, when he retired, uh, the Air Force actually uh, 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 promoted him to uh, the Chief Warrant Officer 5 grade, and, and then that also made him the only uh, Warrant Officer in the Air Force to ever actually carry that grade as well. So, so pretty cool history there. Again, related to us, a fire guy, um, and I'll talk a little bit about... Um, that warrant officer program here um, in a little bit. Yeah, I'm interested here about that and, and why and what warrant officers did specifically in the fire service and you know why they went away and hopefully you touch on that a little bit. Yeah, definitely will. Uh, so we'll get started with the 1930s, right? And so this first slide I kind of kind of highlight here, we, we cover the 1930s to 1946, right? Um, and so uh, from existing records, you know, it appears that uh, firefighters were largely a civilian workforce. Right. Uh, and they worked directly for the post commander during that time. So, again, when we look at uh, why civilians are a big part of who we are in our fire service, um, uh, that's why it started with civilians. I mean, we all start as civilians, but, you know, sometimes we forget when we put the uniform on. Uh, that, you know, we are civilians first. Uh, and I know sometimes, you know, the argument is, you know, well, when you wear the uniform, you take the uniform off, and you go back to civilian life, you forget what it's like to be a military member, right? So kind of have that back and forth. Um, but I always kind of get a chuckle out of that, you know, especially again, when we look at our history and it's like, you know, hey, this was always the case, right? Um, you know, we wear the uniform to execute that mission downrange um, in a lot of cases. And so um, the civilians are there to provide that that continuity. And uh, you'll find out, you know, as I highlight some of our pioneers um, throughout this presentation, uh, that they were civilian firefighters. Um, one in particular that I'll highlight at the end of today's session is uh, Fire Chief uh, Frank Joseph, you know, FDNY firefighter. Um, and he was largely responsible for developing Air Force fire protection um, in the early 40s um, and all the way through the 60s, actually, um, until he retired. So um, a lot of who we are um, is and comes from that civilian workforce. Yeah, and it makes sense in this time period specifically, because in this time period, if you're in the military, you're a soldier, you're a warrior, you're going to the front lines, you're going to war. Um, it, there were very few... And I don't want to say there was none, but there were probably fewer support roles than there were actual combat roles. And so if you're going, you know, in this time, this is the army, army directed air corps, mm -hmm. you know, most military members are, are going to the front lines and we need people taking care of the base and providing, you know, fire protection. And that would come from civilians, you know, 
Absolutely. Yeah, spot on. Um, so, yeah, so uh, during World War II, fire protection services were assigned to the uh, post engineer. Um, and, you know, I thought it was really interesting to find out that, uh, you know, our fire protection services were kind of split um, in the 40s. So uh, you had structural firefighter that uh, those responsibilities or the person responsible, right, uh, for those uh, duties kind of fell under the the post engineer at the time. Um, and that post engineer was designated as the base fire marshal, right? And then structural uh, or aircraft firefighting, I should say, was actually maintained and managed by the aircraft maintenance officer. So you had two separate uh, branches of fire protection, you know, one for structural stuff. And that person was, you know, post engineer uh, was responsible for them. And then you had the the aircraft stuff and that kind of fell to the maintenance officer. And, you know, it kind of, you know, made sense, I guess, you know, back then during those times, you know, if you were just, you know, specialized really in, in, in aircraft firefighting. Um, but again, connecting those dots, right? When you look at, um, if I'm not mistaken, I believe this, the Marine Corps still does somewhat operate that way, where a lot of their civilians kind of hold down the structural firefighting. Um, and then the, you know, the active duty Marines, uh, they more so focused on aircraft uh, firefighting. Yeah, it makes sense to me, and and it's probably hard for us to put in perspective today because we understand and are familiar with crash trucks. Well, back in this day, I don't imagine that there was any apparatus specifically dedicated to putting out aircraft fires, and and so the the, the people putting out and you you could correct me if I'm wrong, and you you may do that, but the people putting out uh, aircraft fires were probably intimately familiar with the aircraft themselves, and who better than the aircraft maintenance people. Correct. Yep. Yeah, you're you're uh, you're on it, Matt. Yeah, in the Marine Corps, and and just to to go back a little bit, you know, they t- talking about how the Air Force has power projection platforms in their bases. The Marine Corps doesn't operate that way, right? They are they're very um, they're a, fa- a fast and agile force, and yeah. you know they're their purpose is different than that of the air force. So it, it, to me, it makes sense that their roles are separated in the fire department, specifically in the Marine Corps too, because when Marines deploy, they're not going to be worried about structural firefighting, but they may be worried about aircraft rescue firefighting. Absolutely. Yep. Spot on. Yeah. So, you know, um, you know, when we look at, uh, you know, this role, right, uh, the post engineer, um, who was also named the base fire marshal, right? And so as we progress through time here, um, in the 1947, when the Air Force became its own um, branch and those those uh, responsibilities transferred, uh, kind of give you a little bit of a peek ahead. You can see how potentially, right, um, you know, the, the fire department duties or the fire service kind of stuck with, or really, uh, dare I say, was born out of CE and not adopted into it. Um, but before I get into that, um, I'll pick up where I left off. And so in, in uh, continuing on in the 1940s, uh, this I found uh, really interesting, too. Um, you know, the rescue crew concept was established actually in 1942, believe it or not. So, um, Matt, I don't know if you remember the days of, 
of ride and rescue or how competitive it was. Right. Um, you know, not anybody could get a seat on rescue. Right. You had to prove yourself. Um, uh, and a lot of times, you know, there, there were people out there who, you know, would make fun of rescue guys and, uh, you know, you know, kind of badger. And then, you know, there was a certain sense of pride that came with that position. Right. Um, the cool thing about this is when I was doing, you know, my, my research and digging through these documents to find out that it started in 1942 uh, was crazy to me. And then to see what was required back then to write it, it makes sense to as to, you know, why it is the way it was uh, during those days um, as well. Right. So I'll just uh, read this real quick. It says uh, the rescue crew concept was established in 1942. Firefighters competed to earn a seat on the, on the elite four-man crew. Both the written examination and demonstrated performance uh, was required for firefighters to be qualified to ride on there. So I thought that was really interesting to, to see that. Yeah, and it is a coveted position, or it was. And as you're talking, it it makes me think about how we're going in our we're going through our own little transition in history right now. Yeah. You know, and how the rescue crew concept is kind of going away and, and morphing into the structural firefighter and rescue crew Correct. concept. And yeah, it, it's uh, it's the the tip of the spear. You know, and, and it makes sense that they it's a coveted position, or it was at least. Yeah, and and again, you know, sometimes we don't know why it was that way, but you know, now again, when we look at history, nineteen forty-two, it required you to take a test and demonstrate that performance, right? Uh, it's pretty cool to see that that had you know essentially carried forward all of these years, uh, but it could have been one of those situations where like we really didn't know why we did it that way or started out that way, but here's the history why. And I think context is important in this case because you're talking about 1942, 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Aircraft were falling out of the sky much more than they are now. Yes, you know, and yeah. and so these guys were they were called to perform. Correct. Yeah, you know, much more often than we are now. And you don't you want your best in the position where they have to potentially pull people out of a burning aircraft. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, definitely good good context to to bring into that. Um, so continuing on in 1943, um, the first uh, Army Air Forces Fire School actually was stood up or established uh, there at Geiger Field in Washington. Um, not really a lot of you know details as to what took place there. Um, obviously, aircraft firefighting uh, was the primary uh, goal. Um, but it was also uh, interesting to, to find out, you know, that, um, you know, not everybody had the opportunity to actually go to, you know, a type of uh, fire school or tech school. And, I'll, you know, I'll kind of unpack that a little bit more later. Um, but uh, later on uh, in 1944, the second fire school was established at Buckley Field um, and it kind of stayed there for about two years until it relocated to Laurie Field. Um, and then it kind of hung out there at Lowry until, uh, the 1960s or so. So any idea on why it, it first started out in Washington and then moved to Colorado? 
I don't. Uh, it didn't really talk about um, as to why it did. Uh, there were some other moves um, in between there, and I'll, I'll unpack those a little bit later, I think in the 60s when we get there. Um, but typically the schools would move either due to BRAC uh, or uh, due to the local uh, really infrastructure not being able to support fire operations. So those were the two primary factors as to why the schools moved as much as they did. I understand. Yeah, it makes sense. And there probably weren't political pressures like there are today about burning jet fuel either. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, in, you know, 1947, obviously, we got our independence, right? Um, and the Air Force became its own branch um, of service. Um and so when that happened, right, when we talked about that post engineer um, and I have here on the slide, you can kind of see one of the first org charts here from 1948. Uh, that post engineer, that position or duty title was was changed from post engineer to air installation officer, um, which, you know, is what we would call today the BCE, right, or the base silver engineer. And right underneath um, uh the org chart there, you have the air installation officers, you have two branches coming off of there. You have the deputy for installation engineering and the deputy for installation management. And right under the deputy for installation management is the fire protection and aircraft crash rescue branch, right? So this is why I say, you know, when we talk about why fire is a part of CE, well, uh, we were actually born or created out of CE. Um, a lot of the functions of the civil engineer, when we talk about maintaining and sustaining a base to include fire protection, uh, those responsibilities fell to the air installation officer. Um, so, um, you know, the responsibility of the fire protection program also came with that. So did the manpower, the people, the resources. And so we were actually born out of CE. Uh, not adopted into it. So a common misconception there. A lot of times we think we came on board later, but we were there from the very beginning. Um, so I, when I teach this course, um, I always, you know, tell our guys to go back to, you know, some of our uh, our counterparts there in ops and, and kind of let them know, you know, where we stand um, and say, hey, you know, we, we've been here since day one kind of thing. So. And I think it, in, in my opinion, it, it's a, perfect marriage and and it i think it grew through the years as fire codes were developed and yep. the you know fire prevention correct yep stuff got a little bit more stringent and now i'm working side by side my civil engineer brethren in building buildings and, and putting in sprinkler systems and, and defining where the exits are and how wide the stairs are and so it was uh turned out to be a perfect marriage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, one of the, the other things that uh, a lot of times people don't know, or at least that I found out, was um, actually EOD and EM were actually adopted or uh, added to CE um, in the actual, like about 1991 is when they officially became a part of CE. Uh, so a lot of people don't know that. Um, and maybe it's because they were added later. And, you know, we all, the three of us, we get lumped in as the emergency services section of CE. Um, but, uh, you know, the thing is, again, is we were always here versus, you know, they kind of came on board a little bit later. Um, but even that was kind of born out of, you know, um, 
the exercise uh, their 1985 salty demo at Lakin, or excuse me, not Lakin Heath at uh, Spangdalen. So, uh, so another you know good good bit of history there uh, for our for our guys out there. So I'll continue on from you know looking at the 1947. So from 1947 to the 1950s, um, you'll kind of see this theme, uh, and I kind of tried to to capture this as more like storytelling, right? So um, some big events and things that transpired, but also hitting on the development and training. And that was really prevalent early on um, in our career field as it is today. Um, and so I kind of take pride in, in knowing and seeing that we were always about getting better. We were never satisfied with status quo. Um, and so we continue to develop and train to get better and to meet the needs um, of the Air Force as technology and, as you said earlier, construction, things like that improve, uh, we've kind of flexed and uh, and moved with those changes. So um, 1947, 1950s, um, you know, heavy investment in fire and emergency services programs. So in fiscal year 48, um, we invested $2.1 million into our programs, you know, whether that was developing the, the O-10, which is one of the first uh, crash trucks that we created uh, for fire service in the Air Force. Um, and I know $2.1 million don't sound, doesn't sound like a lot, right? Uh, but when you look at uh, the inflation rate, I did this, uh, did the math maybe a couple of weeks ago, um, and that came out to be about $22 million, right? Um, the equivalent of $22 million today, you know, back then. Uh, so that's a significant amount of money um, that was invested in our programs and developing our people, uh, developing our equipment. Um, Have you ever considered or thought about what the guys in that time thought about these transitions and getting a aircraft rescue fire vehicle? I try, I try to think about it and put it into context of today, you know, when we have changes and there's resistance to them. Yeah. I wonder what kind of resistance there was to, oh, we're going to fight aircraft fires. That's not our business. That's the main, the maintainer business. You know, yeah. we're in the business of being structural firefighters. You know, I sometimes think about that. No, I do all the time. I and mean, you can see some of the parallels in here. So one of the things uh, Chief Smith out at, uh, Fire Chief out at Bill, uh, kind of highlighted when I presented this course. Um, I don't know if you remember there at AFIT. Um, he brought up a really good point, and I'm kind of jumping a little bit ahead, but when the Air Force uh, decided to become accredited or, you know, make our courses, you know, our Firefighter 1, Firefighter 2, uh, those, you know, our basic courses, um, you know, to get that that IFSAC, um, you know, pro board, you know, seal, uh, there was resistance. Like, there were people that were saying, like, why do I need a certificate or a credential to tell me how to fight fire? Um, but, you know, you look back and it's like, can you imagine if we allowed that mindset to prevail? Like, where would we be today? Right. Right. You know, so I, those are the things I really love to, to look at and, and consider and ponder for sure. Yeah, And studying stuff like this is super important for that very reason. Yeah. I think this is a good lesson that there's always going to be change and That's some of them are going to be, a bit more dramatic or um, a bit more radical than, than others. But, you know, there's always going to be change and it's how you respond to the change. And uh, I think the answer is almost never resisting it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just kind of looking at it and seeing how it's going to work for us and, and being a contributor to make it better. 
make the service better. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you know, am I saying we always get it right? You know, no, you know, but the beauty well, that's part of the change process. Right, too, right. Exactly. You know, the beauty is that we're trying, you know, and we're yeah, you have to explore those boundaries correct. and find out what's wrong, what works and what doesn't so that you can make it better in the future. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, and so when we talk about, you know, um, challenges, right, and difficulties, um, you know, we still had some challenges, you know, um, during this time as well. So there was uh, some difficulties with uh, military recruitment um, and retention. Um, and some of the some of that was due to the fact that, um, you know, there was no specific screen screening for for firefighting. Right. Um, basically, if someone joined the Air Force, you know, you kind of got that job and, you know, and that still happens today. But, you know, by and large, I think these days most people come in, you know, wanting to be a firefighter and typically um, as a guaranteed uh, firefighter. But, you know, it wasn't the case back then. and. Um, one of the other challenges is that, uh, uh, you know, opportunities, there were no incentives. Right. And then also the opportunity to be in a leadership position was uh, very slim because, again, this, you know, our, our career field was, you know, consisted heavily with uh, civilians. And so, you know, if all you ever saw was a civilian fire chief, you know, you, you realize very quickly, you know, that your career would kind of cap out you know, maybe as a firefighter or maybe as a driver um, or maybe assistant chief or, or uh, but you would never have that opportunity to maybe to lead. Um, and so that kind of uh, turned some recruits off um, in those early days. And, you know, changes were made, obviously, to where we are today. And even just, you know, maybe just a couple of years ago, right, the, the change to our AFI to say, you know, if it's a civilian fire chief, we're going to have a, you know, military deputy or vice versa. And there are some exceptions out there, of course. But, um, you know, when we look at those, those challenges existed, you know, in our early days. Yeah, it's an interesting bit of history. And did it mention anything specific on, so it said difficulties with recruitment and retention. Is there, is there statistics associated with that? Were they shutting down fire departments or having to bring in civilians to run them? No, so it didn't dive too much into the impact, uh, just more or less that, um, you know, essentially uh, the departments uh, were heavily civilianized and uh, not really a lot of opportunities for, for the military guys to, to progress. Um, so, This is post-World War II, and so that, that may have played a role, too. Yeah, that's you know, true. Yeah. As, as people are getting out of the service and but it is around the time of the Korean war too. So. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, you know, again, I kind of mentioned early on or not, not long ago about uh, not everyone had the opportunity either, you know, to go to actual tech school. Um, in fact, the majority of the force was developed by OJT um, at your specific base. Right. And so that kind of led to some challenges uh, where people were, you know, maybe if you were at base X, you got this kind of training, you know, or, you know, you had a sharp, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, training team over there and they were able to develop you. And, and then maybe you went to another base and it wasn't the case. And you know what? It could be argued that that's still the case today. Right. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> that's exactly what I'm thinking right now. That's exactly. <laughs> And it's, it's funny, it's funny that this was a thing in 1947 to 1950 and 
it's still a thing today, right? That yeah. We're, de- we're developing this uh, firefighter development program. Correct. That, that is supposed to do exactly this. It's supposed to kind of institute on the job training. Yeah. Following tech school. It's just, it's kind of funny how this stuff goes full circle. And maybe the, if this podcast still exists in a hundred years and they're having an episode <laughs> on history, they're saying the same thing about us. Yeah, that'd be funny. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's, and that's the beautiful thing about history too, is, you know, and I know it's a cliche statement. People say it all the time, you know, if, you know, you, you don't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been, you know, but you know, this is kind of a prime example of, of why that, you know, that, that statement rings true. You know, it's a lot of things are cyclical and they, they come and go. And, um, you know, if we can kind of learn from, you know, decisions that were made in the past, maybe we don't make those same you know, mistakes, um, going forward. So, yeah, it's, that's a very good point. And I'm seeing it even in my short time in, in the military now yeah. where some of the younger people come forward with new ideas that they think, you know, maybe are revolutionary or like, nobody's <laughs> ever thought of this. And, you know, in the back of your mind, you're like, well, actually we've thought about that. And I, I've seen people come to the table with this handful of times, but go with it, man. See what you get. See yeah. What you get with yeah. It, you know? And you know what, that's a good point too, you know, and, and you know, obviously staying open-minded, right? Because, one thing I learned, too, when we look back in our history is sometimes things were ahead of their time. Right. So maybe it didn't work, you know, at that particular time. Yeah. absolutely. And then you institute it a little bit later. Right. Um, and it's like, whoa, you know, this is uh, this is exactly what we needed. But right. Know. Maybe the culture is right now and the right. technology is right right now. You know, sometimes yep. that. You got to put, you got to put things back on the shelf and wait another 10 years to make make uh, to have the technology develop something yeah. like that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just a quick example of that is, you know, we talk about the ACE concept, right? Um, you know, that's kind of the buzzword these days. And well, you know, if you, when we look at history and as we'll, we'll walk through some of these things, we were kind of getting after that in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, we were developing things that will, that I believe will work probably today for the ACE concept that were decommissioned or it didn't really have, there was no real interest for it back then. So just, uh, just to kind of foreshadow of, of what's to come there. Yeah. And explain the ACE concept for those who don't know. Yeah. So the ACE concept is, uh, the agile combat employment. It's, uh, the new concept or a way that we plan to, uh, to combat our, our near peer, as they're calling them these days, uh, competitors, right? Uh, so, uh, without getting too much into, you know, um, you know, the details, but yeah, essentially it's, a, a an agile mobile, you know, quick moving, you know, type concept, um, of the way we do, do business. Right. And um, I think a good example of a technology now that it's just not ready is, um, I think about it all the time is kind of computers and internet infrastructure within the fire department in the air force specifically. Cause you, you look at our counterparts outside yes. the fence in most yeah. places, you know, they, they lean heavily on doing their, their reports through computers and being dispatched through computers and, yep. do, and, and through the internet infrastructure. And we're not quite there. Nope. And, uh, that's one of those ideas that I think we got a shelf until our, our air force networks come around and, you know, there's some there's some bright people within our career field that probably have a lot of great ideas in regards to how to dispatch and how to direct crews and how to fill out reports. But we our, our infrastructure is just not ready for it yet. And maybe it will be in 10 years, hopefully. Yeah, I agree. Very good point. 
so before I kind of close out, uh, you know, these early 50s here. Uh, so what one of the things that was developed, right, to to get after this OJT kind of difference in training, um, there was a manual created in 1955 and it was sent out to the field uh, to kind of try and standardize and increase knowledge across, um, you know, the force. Um, and so, again, you know, we look at our rookie book, you know, something that was developed to kind of further develop, uh, you know, uh, cultivate those skills of our, our firefighters after they left tech school uh, when they got to those first bases. And, you know, I know, you know, again, my first base at Vandenberg there, uh, that we did the rookie book, uh, and I'd say 2005 is when they launched theirs. Um, and I remember because I, I was there already, Right. For probably I think I had been there about six months and they were like, hey, we're starting this rookie book program. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, I've been here already. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but they uh, yeah, it was definitely uh, retroactive. So I, I went through the program and I found it extremely beneficial um, during that time. Did I want to do it? You know, no. But looking back and even, you know, immediately I realized the benefits of, of going through that program. And so it's pretty awesome to see. And this, you know, I don't know if you remember, it was actually during that 427 class that we were down there. Uh, the folks that were working on the rookie book were actually downstairs at that time. Yeah, yeah I do remember. This. Yeah, yeah. So and there's a little bit of history there too. So the the couple of guys that were kind of leading the charge there in that particular time period were from J Bear, and I I was stationed there for six years, and I was there when the rookie book at J Bear was first kind of developed and nice and put on, on the floor. Yeah. So I was, uh, that's awesome. I had an intimate understanding of what they had going on there. And, but again, it goes back to, you know, we didn't necessarily invent anything revolutionary. This is something that existed in, uh, in the late fifties in 1955 when they came out with this book and in your time in 05, it, when you showed up at Vandenberg. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, again, you know, we're seeing how things kind of, you know, uh, come back around, um, but again, you know, with improvements, you know, so uh, I'm pretty excited to yeah, see, see what the future holds. A couple of more uh, things to highlight here during the, the 50s. Um, you got to talk about the chopper, right? Uh, the uh, uh, the Husky uh, or the HH-43 Bravo, um, you know, nicknamed early on the, the Husky and then uh, later on renamed uh, the Pedro. Um, was kind of uh, started in the 1957 uh, or in 1957. Uh, so the Air Force uh, kind of developed about 200 of these uh, these uh, uh, helicopters, if you will. They had wooden rotors. Um, the idea was for them to be uh, used as a local base rescue um, uh, apparatus or program, right? It was to, to allow firefighters to get to a scene of a, of a downed aircraft um, and get there immediately. And then also, uh, attach this, um, uh, fire suppression kit that weighed about a hundred pounds or so. Uh, and it was 78 or 7.78.5 gallons of water. Um, it had about 60, uh, gallons of, uh, foam and, uh, it had 150 foot hose line attached. And, you know, you show up on scene, the plane would land, the firefighters would jump off, um, 
and they would make a rescue path to to try and get to the pilot. And then what what they found or what they were able to do also is use the rotor, the wash, the rotor wash from the from the aircraft to kind of um, suppress the fire, push the push the foam out over the fuel and kind of help with the actual firefighting operations. Uh, so it's pretty cool to see again, you know, um, you know, in the 50s, you know, we kind of came up with this concept. You know, we uh, decided that this was uh, an option or function that we needed to have in our in our kit. Yeah, it's a pretty incredible piece of history. And it, it, it brings me back to the point I made earlier that planes were dropping out of the sky a lot more often back then. And yeah. Yeah, when, when you when you mentioned something like this, this helicopter that existed and that the Air Force paid or paid to make 200 of them. It's like, what was happening to drive that decision? You know? Right. Good point. Yeah. I, I, I think about that a little bit. And, and and I think another thing worth worth mentioning now is um, many who may be listening are familiar with ramp patrols. Mm. You know, and it, so there's there's a lot of relics in our history yeah. that point to a time when there were a lot more emergencies, a lot more aircraft mishaps, you know, to, to drive the decision to have a ramp patrol or to have a hot pit standby, for example. Correct. You know, what, what was happening back yeah. at that time? You know, I'm, I'm sure yeah. there was a lot of incidents. Yeah. And, you, you, you know, you, again, you bring up a good point. And the way I see it is, you know, those times can come back around again. Right. So when we look at, you know, our wartime operations and, you know, most of us, you know, have been in for, you know, the war on terror. Right. Uh, different type of enemy that we're fighting. Right. We, we didn't call them a uh, peer competitor or near peer competitor. Right. So we typically kind of dominated, you know, those 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 AORs, those 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 fights. Uh, but when we and I'll kind of highlight, you know, when we uh, when we look at Desert Storm, Desert Shield, uh, the guys that were downrange for those two operations, when we were fighting another state, you know, actor, um, there was some those guys were busy. You know, there were aircraft that were, you know, uh, crashing or aircraft that sustained battle damage. Um, and so if we look at it in terms of you know, as we shift our focus on, you know, on these new competitors um, or these emerging threats, the potential to see this kind of action again uh, is very real. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Very good point. And we haven't seen that since. Uh, I mean, it could be argued even far back as, as Korea, which Vietnam, they had a, a more dominant fighting force than yes. what they had in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah, but I mean, even even still, Vietnam ended in what seventy five. You know, that's that's a whole lot of time. You know, we're talking Absolutely. about a century at this point. Yeah. So, yep. we, we could certainly, and that's a lot of generations that have come and gone of yeah. firefighters, and we could see these same problems surface again for sure. Absolutely. And so, uh, you know, the other thing too, you know, we talk about Vietnam, and so uh, this aircraft, although it was never really designed for combat. Um, it got a lot of action. And uh, I think when we get into the 70s, I'll kind of highlight some of the um, the actions of this aircraft and some of the men um, at the time that rode this aircraft um, that uh, really did some some pretty awesome things um, for our service and, and represented the fire department and fire service well. Yeah, and there's there's one hanging in the Air Force Museum at Wright Patterson. It is. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And there is a story, I want to say, associated with that particular aircraft. But I think Special Operations 
in Vietnam would work hand in hand with firefighters in some cases, I think pararescue men specifically. Yes, and, they uh, did. Yep. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And, uh, I'll highlight him uh, a little bit later, but, uh, chief, uh, McAllister, um, you know, who are, you know, our heroism award is named after, uh, there's a reason, uh, why he's that award is named after him when we get into, uh, his history and the things he did specifically in Vietnam, um, on this aircraft, uh, pretty amazing, uh, stuff there. Uh, so I'm down to, uh, kind of my last point, uh, for, for the fifties. And that was in 1958, uh, you know, this is more of an Air Force wide thing, but it impacted us as as a fire service uh, was the birth of the super grades. Right. So uh, prior to 1958, uh, the highest rank, you know, as a military member, you could achieve was E7. Right. Or, you know, master sergeant. And so uh, uh, in 1958, uh, Congress authorized us to to open up the grades of E8 and E9. And so almost simultaneously as the Air Force uh, started to appoint people to uh, those two grades, they decommissioned 1959, specifically the warrant officer program. Um, They just felt like they didn't need another layer in between the enlisted and officer corps. And then there's, you know, stories out there of how um, like the Air Force just didn't really know what to do with warrant officers. you know, they just kind of sat in this weird position, right? They were typically or often called the in-betweeners. Uh, so they could, they had the ability to go to the officers club, but they could also go to the enlisted club, right? Um, and I know today, in today's days, right, those, a lot of places, you know, even here at Masawa, we kind of have a consolidated club, right? It's one building, but one side's the O side, one side's the east side. But, you know, back then there was a, a much more distinct separation, right? So you had this group of folks who can kind of transverse, you know, both of those uh, arenas, right? And then another kind of funny thing, at least I thought it was funny, is that uh, one of the official titles for one officer was Mister. So it would, yeah. So it would be like, "Hey, Mister Burrell, how are you today?" And that was acceptable, right? So. Um, you know, it was just one of those kind of, you know, weird positions. And, you know, another interesting fact is that really to this day, um, the, if the Air Force wanted to reinstate warrant officers, they can't, they could. Um, they still have the authorization from Congress to do, do so. And in my personal opinion, I think if any career field could benefit from that program, it would be fire, right? And obviously I'm biased, right? You can say that. But when you look at the structure and makeup of our career field, the the uh, tactical and, and technical expertise that's required um, at the fire chief level, um, it could be argued that that would be a good slot for a warrant officer. Yeah, I I'd certainly agree with you. Yeah. There's a lot of authority in, in the fire chief and the deputy fire chief specifically. Absolutely. And there's a lot of responsibility, I should say. Absolutely. So, you know, when I look at it from that perspective, um, that's something that, uh, you know, I, I think about uh, for fire and warrant officers uh, specifically. Uh, so what happened was with all of our warrant officers that were, you know, in the fire service um, during this time, they were offered. Um, and this was really Air Force wide, no matter what program you were in or, or community you belong to. They started offering commissions uh, to 
to those folks. Um, and then they offered early outs, early retirements. Uh, and so essentially they just started uh, getting rid of those uh, warrant officers. Um, and really a lot of it came down to attrition. And so for the ones that decided, you know, to uh, not to accept the commission, um, they stayed in the fire service for everyone else. They kind of, you know, were reassigned to different duties, um, if you will. Um, and so when we look at uh, Chief Burrell and we look at Chief Garland and um, there's a list of them when we look at the if you you know look into the source document, uh, Pioneers with Intent, uh, there's a list of, of fire uh, guys and warrant officers that said, no, you know, I'm going to stay. Um, and that led to uh, you know, Chief Rob Burrell being the last one um, to retire there in 1992. Wow. I didn't yeah. realize it was that long. Yeah. So the last active duty, you know, he wasn't a fire guy. He was a transportation guy. But the last active duty chief warrant officer uh, retired in 1980. So so the last uh, slide for for this session, uh, closing out the uh, 1950s, uh, is a pioneer highlight. Right. And so uh, I decided to. Uh, to choose Chief Frank Joseph uh, the sixth to to highlight. Uh, I will say that there are a lot of people that you could pull from the materials that I researched and studied, but these were, uh, you know, my personal choices for pioneer highlights. So um, you may find that uh, someone else might uh, uh, suit you better, but uh, this is you know, who I decided to choose. And so I'll talk a little bit about him. And in 1931, um, Chief Joseph uh, started his career with FDNY, uh, the fire service there. And uh, he came from a long line, a long history of uh, fire protection uh, or firefighters, I should say, in FDNY. And uh, some of his history and, and his legacy and heritage is uh, family goes back to the Civil War, actually. And so uh, uh, in 1931, uh, he took up that same mantle and decided to follow in the footsteps of those that came before him and uh, join FDNY. Uh, it was one night uh, actually on a call, though, that he, he suffered a, a very brutal accident. He fell through a roof um, all the way down to uh, the bottom floor and fell on his back on a railroad track and uh, that injury, the injuries he sustained from that, uh, the doctors and all of the experts told him that he'd be bedridden for the rest of his life. Uh, he had several fractures in his spine, um, some other leg injuries, arm injuries. Uh, and so they basically essentially wrote him off. Right. And so I, you know, I kind of always jokingly say the, the worst thing you can do to a firefighter is tell them they can't do something. And so uh, uh, Chief Joseph kind of set out to prove them wrong and also to just bring himself back into to shape and return to the fire service. And, and he did just that. He, you know, put together some some uh, medical contraptions, some things to kind of help him and uh, decided, you know, the best way to really get back into to shape was to, to swim. Um, and so he went down to Florida spent some time down there rehabilitating. Um, also during his time, he decided to coach uh, some uh, sports for colleges and things like that. And he just had an excellent uh, 
you know, mindset, right? Uh, he just had that excellence attitude and every team that he coached, uh, they won, you know, championship after championship after championship. And so he did that for a couple of years and then decided, you know, he was re- rehabilitated enough to come back to the fire service. And so he went back to those same folks, that same medical board that told him he'd be bedridden for uh, the rest of his life and basically said, you know, here I am. Um, I told you I could do it kind of thing. Um, and so I think it was partly, you know, some of that tenacity really kind of bled into uh, our fire service and who we are today. Um, so in 1940, he joined the Army Air Corps um, and decided to serve. And he was actually called up by the Secretary of Defense at the time. And they basically told him, hey, I need you to go and, and organize all military fire departments from Waycross, Georgia, all the way down to Avon Park, Florida. So huge task, huge responsibility. And what uh, Chief Joseph uh, essentially did was went on a recruiting uh, hunt and started uh, reaching out to a lot of his FDNY folks and uh, uh, other firefighters he met, had met along the way, recruited them to actually come and work in some of these departments, these military departments to help organize and train and equip uh, uh, those departments to uh, get after the mission there. Um, and so, uh, as I mentioned uh, and uh, earlier on in the session, 1942, he was the one who uh, developed that rescue truck uh, concept, and one that we, we cherished and loved for many, many years. Um, and he continued to serve as the fire chief uh, at McDill uh, Air Force Base uh, until his passing in 1966. I wonder how you get a call from the Secretary of Defense, or in that time it was the Department of War. Is that right? Yeah, I think it was the Department of War. Anyway, I wonder how you get a phone call from that person right. saying, hey, I want you to organize the fire department. Well, and that's, you know, how did, how does your name become that known? Yeah, for sure, to get, get that phone call, you know. He must have had a good reputation in FDNY, I imagine. Absolutely, definitely. And you mentioned he got the Lifetime Achievement Award in 2013? Correct, yeah. So that was going to be the, that final closing piece there. And so in 2013, um, when the Military uh, Firefighter Heritage Foundation was, was opened or started, uh, he was one of the first round or first ballot, I, I should say, uh, Hall of Famers and uh, also received the Lifetime Achievement Award um, there. So his legacy is forever cemented along with uh, a lot of other people, like I said, that we could name, um, but I really wanted to just highlight him for his tenacity, uh, his civilian service, and also his military service uh, to our nation. And there's some of the the things that he did to, to get us where we are uh, today. Yeah, a lot of great history. You covered, We covered a lot of details today, a lot of uh, very interesting facts. I appreciate your time and I look forward to part two. Uh, likewise. Thanks, Matt. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FireDog Podcast. You can find more episodes just like this regularly posted to our website, FireDog.us. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash the FireDog Podcast and on Instagram at the FireDog Podcast. That is the Fire D-U-W-G Podcast. Please subscribe, like, and follow to stay plugged into every new episode and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you've enjoyed this episode. Lastly, don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and coworkers, either on social media or right there at the Firehouse. Stay tuned for part two of the Air Force Fire Protection Series, where we'll cover 1960s and 1970s. This is Matt Wilson and Senior Master Sergeant Damian Moore. Until next time, stay safe.